I'm a child of the 80s, meaning that's, I, that's when I was in my pretty formative years, little kid. And of course, we had three broadcast stations. And I remember racing home so I could watch this movie that was going to be playing that night. And I didn't go to the theater because I was too little and it was just, you know, a whole thing. And so I remember I saw a bunch of movies this way on our little TV screen in our living room, edited for television, interrupted by commercials every 30 minutes. I'd seen the movie, but I hadn't seen it the way the creators intended. There's some experiences that you want to have the way the person that designed that experience meant it to be had. If it's a movie, you're in a dark theater, there's Dolby surround sound, nobody's using cell phones, you got a big bucket of popcorn, it's uninterrupted by commercials. That's the way these movies were meant to be experienced, not on a little 13-inch bubble screen TV that weighed 1,000 pounds, interrupted every few minutes for an advertisement for Wendy. So there were movies that I thought I'd seen, and I knew the general plot line, but I hadn't experienced. And I think there's a real similar truth when it comes to scripture, particularly the Gospels, where we have seen the movie, but we haven't experienced it. We know the general plot line. We know what happens. Jesus shows up as a baby, and he teaches some stuff. He gets baptized, calls some guys. He, you know, things are going really well, then things don't go so well, then he dies, and he's resurrected again. And we know the general plot line. Why would we have to dig into scriptures again? And, and not only that, why are there four accounts of this story? I mean, that's too many. Well, really, really glad you asked. I told you a couple weeks ago that as we go through this scriptural formation, we're going to be talking about what we read the prior week on Sunday mornings. And I've had several people ask the question, how in the world are you going to preach a sermon that covers such a large text on a Sunday morning? And I'd say that's a very good question. We're going to do it verse by verse. This is a four-hour sermon. Hope you had a big breakfast because you're not getting lunch. All right? Buckle up. No, my goal is to give us a way to grab a hold of the text. So if you read Matthew last week, Matthew 1 through 12, great. If you didn't, I'm going to give you a recap. Cliff Notes version, not as good as the original, but you'll get the, the gist. But my goal is to give you like just sort of a foothold in the text, a way for, for you to get a hold of the text, or, or maybe more accurately, a way for the text to get a hold of you. This series, is, particularly today, will be a little more teaching than preaching, which you may not care about that particular distinction, but it's a little different. It's a little bit more like, hey, let's learn this together than it is me getting up here and saying, hey, this is what we should do. This is how we should be changed, inspired. A little more teaching than preaching. I have broken down the entire book of Matthew into a handy chart that we can learn in about two seconds. There you go. So you got it, right? That's pretty, that's pretty easy, pretty simple to understand, right? All right, we can, keep, uh, we can keep moving. Actually, this chart has nothing to do with Matthew. I googled most boring PowerPoint ever, and this is what came up. And it's about something else. I have no idea. But this can feel like this, this can be like the experience of trying to read the Bible anywhere you start. I mean, certainly in certain parts, it's, it's even worse, but it can just feel like this overwhelming amount of information and your brain just shuts down like in high school where your teacher's going on and on. And maybe you would perk up when they would say, this is going to be on the test. So I think that if we, if, we, if we tune out, we're missing some of the, the amazing stuff that's happening in this book. So the Gospel of Matthew, 28 chapters, 22,642 words in the version that, uh, that I tend to, to read and, and study from. But I want us to try to just give us a way into the story. 
The first thing that you'll want to know about the book of Matthew is that there's these six chunks of, of action in the book of Matthew, the way it's, the way it's organized. So there's these, these just chunks of action. Interrupting those chunks of action in the book of Matthew are these TED Talks, these sermons. And they're sermons that you're familiar with. So it's Jesus' teaching. So that's the general breakdown of how Matthew works. And you can see Matthew was pretty organized. This author was thinking about how he wanted to shape this information and deliver it to this audience. So what's all this about? What's going on? What's the big picture? What story is this trying to tell us? Well, Jesus, Patrick, it's about Jesus. I, I know, I know, but there's three other accounts. What's this one trying to tell us? Anybody here get into classical music? Yeah, all right, two, two, two people. And one is pointing at the other. Like it's, like it's a bad thing, like this guy. Um, have, have you heard of uh, Beethoven's Piano Sonata Number 14? Anybody know? A couple of you know? It's all otherwise known as the Moonlight Sonata. It's just notes on a page, and every single composer at that time had access to those same notes. So do you, so do I. We, have, we all have access to the same notes, but he arranges them in a way to produce something. You hear the beginning notes, and you start thinking like, oh, this is melancholy. I wonder what was going through Beethoven's mind. I wonder if there was a girl. I wonder if there was someone that he loved that he could not marry, but he had proposed and her dad said no. And so he dedicated this piece of music to Julietta. I wonder if it was something like that. Well, yes, there's a story behind it. Beethoven's taking those same notes that we all have, and he's arranging them in a way for you to have a response, for you to be shaped by it. This isn't happy celebratory music. There's, there, there's, there's something, you're, you're being moved in a direction here. He's trying to communicate something to you. Matthew has 22,000 words and he takes them and he shapes them in a way to communicate something to you. What He's arranging those, those stories and those, those words and those teachings in a way that shapes you and moves you in a direction. So what is he hoping to accomplish well, our first clue, and it's just kind of cool because Matthew doesn't come out and say, hey, everybody, guess what? This is what I want to do with my version of the Jesus story. You have to discern what Matthew is trying to accomplish through hints and clues within the text itself. But the very first clue is in the very first verse of the section that maybe we skimmed over. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew is trying to accomplish essentially three things. Out of everything that he's writing, he's trying to accomplish three things. He's trying to shape three things within you. And the first thing he's trying to shape is that, that it's all one thing. It's all one thing. There's a uh, popular way of thinking about Christianity, maybe you've done it, you've certainly heard it, that you have this Old Testament, this old thing, and then Jesus came along and he gave us the New and Improved Testament. And now that we have the New and Improved Testament, we don't need the Old Testament in the anymore. It's like if you upgrade your, your cell phone, if you get a new iPhone 13, you don't need that Blackberry from, from 2003. You don't need that old one anymore, just get rid of it. And so 
what happens is, is that the Old Testament often gets neglected and we focus on the New. It just is right in the language of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so personally, I try to avoid using the phrase Old Testament when I teach and preach. I try to describe it as the Hebrew Bible because it's not something to be ignored or done away with. What Matthew is trying to do, writing to a specifically Hebrew audience, is help them understand that these two these two movements are part of the same overall story. And to lose one is to kind of have the other be diminished. Not that you can't get the point, but, but it's not as full. There's not as much nuance. There's not as much depth and riches to, to it because we've ignored the one. In fact, Jesus himself in Matthew 5, 17 said, Do not think I came to abolish the law and the prophets, which is a way of saying the Old Testament. I didn't come to do away with that. My goal isn't that you kick that to the curb. I came to fulfill it. Meaning that there were clues and hints and directions given in the first part of the story that Jesus came along to complete in the second part. And as he's writing to this Hebrew audience that fully believed in the first part of the story, he's helping them see that this is just, this is the sequel. It's not one of those unnecessary sequels that's a cash grab by Hollywood to get your money. This is, a, this is the to-be-continued part of what's, what's revealed in the first part. So the Hebrew Bible drops these hints and clues, Jesus reveals these hints and clues. The original predicts and the new presents. It's, it's all connected. It's all together. And, you know, who cares about this? But you can watch The Empire Strikes Back. That's the best Star Wars movie. It's number two. But it's going to be a little diminished if you didn't watch uh, a New Hope, number one. If you just jump in number two, you're not going to have a full nuance of what's going on. And so there's a value to reading the story as it's meant to be read. And so all, we'll talk about this in just a second, but there's all these references to the Hebrew Bible in the New. You, you saw it as you were reading it, right? It's why he brings up Abraham and David in line one, because he's writing to an audience that cares about this, that's like, oh, this is the guy that's supposed to come. David, the iconic Hebrew king, and Abraham, the original, the, the, the father of all nations. And he brings them up and ties them to Jesus to try to weave these stories together. There's all these hyperlinks, too. Often he doesn't even clue them into the fact that it's a Hebrew Bible quote. For example, you're familiar with the Beatitudes, right? You know, the meek shall inherit the earth. You've heard that before here or there. Uh, have you ever read Psalm 3711? Where it sounds an awful lot. It's almost like Jesus was plagiarizing, but I guess you can't plagiarize the text that you wrote. But the meek will inherit the land and enjoy peace and prosperity. There's all these parallels, too, to the Hebrew Bible story. There's a story about a boy who escapes a murderous ruler, and he's the, the, the one boy that got away, but then he comes back later to save his people from slavery. That's the Moses story, but that's also the Jesus story. Or he escapes to Egypt, and Matthew tells us in Matthew 2.15 that both Moses and Jesus came out of Egypt. Or Moses spends how many years in the wilderness? Forty. And Jesus spends how many days in the wilderness? 
40, and the Hebrew people in the wilderness succumbed to the temptations, uh, and Jesus overcame the temptations. I mean, there's all these parallels that he's trying to get us to see that Jesus' story is mapped onto this Hebrew Bible story. It's weaving together all these new things. He's not making something up. He's not some guy in upstate New York who claimed to find some golden tablets, and he's the only one who can decipher them, and all of a sudden he's creating a religion where he gets to do whatever he wants and marry however many wives he wants to marry. This is not some fly-by-night prophet. This is part of thousands of years of God revealing himself to the world. And Jesus is the fulfillment of it. It's all one thing. But then secondly, Matthew wants us to notice that Jesus is the one. Jesus is the one. Did anybody read anything in Matthew that left them scratching their head a little bit? Where you're like, what was that? <coughs> me personally, the part that confused me a little bit, when, and I've read it before, but... I just was like, what is the deal with these two guys? They have demons, and Jesus comes along and says, I will cast the demons out. And the demons are like, hey, yeah, you can cast this out, but would you send us into those pigs over there? And Jesus is like, you got it, guys. Sends them into the pigs, and the pigs run off a cliff. I'm just like, what? What is that? Now, maybe there's people who would have read that originally and been like, oh, I totally get it. But I'm like, I I need to do a little bit more studying. That's a very confusing story. What exactly is going on? I did hear a sermon. This is a little bonus for you. I didn't tell this in the first service. I did hear a sermon one time that said even the pigs knew that salvation was in the water trying to prove baptism. And I was like, I don't think that's what that story is. I'm not smart, but I don't think that's what's going on there. But Matthew wants us to know that Jesus is the one. And Matthew 1.1, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. It's actually a Hebrew word uh, for, uh, for a Greek word. But Jesus, it means Jesus is the one, the anointed, the one. He's the guy. And he's starting off to making that declaration. You could, you could argue that Matthew's the, the most influential book in the Bible. I know this is silly because it's not how we think of scripture. But I mean, it's the first account, there was a reason when they arranged these scriptures, they were like, Matthew goes first. Matthew's right at the beginning. The first thing people are going to read about Jesus is Matthew. And it's the very first. It's, it's got the most comprehensive collection of Jesus' teaching in scripture that we have. It's, pretty, it's a pretty influential book. Do you, do you know the, the reason we call it Matthew? We have no idea who wrote the book of Matthew. I've been saying Matthew all morning. We don't know who wrote it. Because nowhere in the text does it say, Dear reader, my name is Matthew. I just wanted to write a little memoir about my time with Jesus. There's nothing like that. If I had written something that had the potential to be one of the most widely read pieces of literature, I'd want to slip my name in there. I'd want a little bit of credit. It wouldn't be all about credit, but I just want people to know, like, hey, Patrick was here. Patrick did this. And the author of the book of Matthew doesn't care about credit. Do you you know why we think Matthew wrote it, the Apostle Matthew? We don't know this, but we think he wrote it because people about 100 years after it was written said that he wrote it. But that was just them saying that too. And that's a good reason as any to go along with it. Might might as well have been Matthew. But we just don't know because the text itself doesn't care about the one who wrote down the text. It constantly wants to point us to Jesus. The story of the pigs isn't about the pigs jumping off a cliff wanting to be baptized. The story of the pigs is that there's this guy named Jesus who has power over demons. That's the point. It keeps putting our focus back on Jesus. The text doesn't care who wrote it. It only cares that you see Jesus for who he really is. 
And the third thing Matthew seems to want to do, of course, out of many other things, but the third major thing is to help us understand that everyone is invited. For example, there's a lot of nobodies and there's a lot of outsiders in the book of Matthew. It's written to Hebrew people, but a lot of nobodies and a lot of outsiders make an appearance. For example, the very first people to whom the announcement that the king of the earth is, has arrived and has been born is a bunch of shepherds out in a quiet field with a bunch of sheep. These are not important, prominent people who have a lot of influence in the community. But notice, again, Matthew 1.1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David. The word genealogy, it's the Greek word Genesis. So our Old Testament Bibles, Hebrew Bibles, the very first book is named after a Greek word, but the genesis, the beginning, Genesis. And so these genealogies, Paul said he liked them, but they can be a little tedious, right? I mean, come on, you, some of you skimmed it a little bit, but it, if you're going to read through them, it's like panning for gold. It's going to take a while, but you could hit some pay dirt. Um, here's the first eight verses of the genealogy here on the screen. And you look at that and you're like, okay, oof, that's too much text. Brain shutting down. I have to go do something else, something interesting. Instagram, scroll, scroll, scroll. But if you take just a, a little bit longer look at this text, there's a few things that are going to stand out at you. Uh, number one, and I know we don't sit around, sit around talking about our genealogies very much. Nobody sits around very rarely until they get later in their life and starts being interested in who their great, 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 great grandparents were. Hebrew people that mattered a lot. Because it was very important to know that they were part of the group, that they were insiders, that they didn't have too much outsider in them. So, you know, there's a little nationalism, maybe a little racism built into that. It really mattered. And it really mattered who dad was. Not so much who mom was. This isn't to say moms aren't important, but in their conception of the world, the dads were the really important ones. So they didn't record who mom was. In fact, sometimes it was tricky to record who mom was because dad may have had multiple wives and they just said this was the most important guy anyway, so who cares about the moms? In Matthew, or whoever, in their version of the genealogy, notice what pops out there. Go to the next slide if you would. There's some mothers. Now about five times in this text, the genealogy refers to mom. What's very interesting, why does it refer to mom? If you're reading through the book of Genesis and you're cruising along and you read chapter 37 and you're like, this is a cool story, and chapter 39, this is a cool story, right in the middle is this bizarre, out of left field story about this lady named Tamar in chapter 38. It is a weird story and it doesn't reflect well, and it's one that's probably not going to get talked around the Thanksgiving table very often, because it is scandalous. And this author, probably Matthew, goes out of his way to bring her back into the story and to say the king of the world has this woman in his ancestry. And then it goes down, even further down, you see Rahab. Anybody know what Rahab's job was? Yeah, she was a prostitute. That is literally what the Hebrew word means that she did. Later, some rabbis came along and were like, no, we don't think she was a prostitute. We think she was an innkeeper. That explains why there's so much traffic in and out of the house. And it's possible people can have two jobs, but that just got made up wholesale because they didn't like the idea that highlighted as a person of faith in the Hebrew Bible is this person who's a prostitute. And then the author says, I want that person to be highlighted in this genealogy. 
And then, of course, Ruth. Uh, of course, Ruth is the grandmother of David, the most iconic king in Hebrew history. So if Hebrew people are like, we don't want any of those riffraff, the Gentile pagan riffraff, and, you know, keep them out. We don't like them. Matthew's going out of his way to say, hey, even David's grandma was a Gentile. She was one of those riffraff. So everybody's included. My favorite part of this, I don't know if you noticed this, but remember, Hebrew people in the first century are an occupied nation. Another nation, Rome, has come in and has clamped down and said, we are in charge now. You answer to us. You pay taxes to us. And the presence of this occupied nation was exemplified in the Roman soldier. I mean, he had to be the, the least liked person in all of Israel. And there's this story where a Roman soldier has a servant who's sick and comes to Jesus. And you, you remember the story? And the soldier says, Jesus, you don't even need to come to the house. In fact, I know what it's like to have authority. You can just speak and heal them from a distance. And you remember what Jesus says? Jesus says, whoa, mind-blowing. I have not found anyone with such great faith. All right, well, anyone. Yeah, nobody in Israel has faith like this Roman soldier. Do you imagine that would have been like, oh, shot to the heart. That's our thing, Jesus. We're the, we're the chosen people. We're the people of faith. And you're saying this outsider has the greatest faith you've ever seen? This is not a way to win friends and influence people. It would be like if a presidential candidate came to Minnesota and was like, hey, I've been all over this great country. You know who handles cold weather better than anybody else in the nation? And we would be sitting there saying, yeah, it's us. Come on, compliment us. We know how to handle it. If that presidential candidate said Floridians, we would be like, out, get out. That's our thing. We have one thing and it's dealing with cold weather. That is our thing. The Hebrew people would have been like, come on, Jesus, that's our thing. We're people of faith. We're people of God. We're children of God. And you're saying this Roman soldier is the greatest faith in all of Israel? Come on. All right. I told you this is going to be more teaching than it is uh, preaching, but there's so much we could have talked about. This sermon preparation was more about like what not to include than what to include. But I hope that give, this gives us a little handhold as we enter into the second half of the book. And this next week, we'll almost finish Matthew. Not quite. We'll get the, the death and resurrection story for the following week. But we'll almost finish Matthew this week. But I hope you'll begin to see like, okay, it's all one thing. It's all part of this grand narrative. And, and Matthew is helping us weave it together. And Jesus is the one. And the, the point of the story is all about Jesus. It's all about who he is. And everyone is included. Everyone is invited into the story. If you're a little behind in the reading, that's okay. If you haven't started, if you're kind of sitting there thinking, man, I kind of wish I had started last week, just jump in. In fact, maybe just go back and read Matthew 5 through 7. It's so good, so helpful. There, yes, there will be questions you have, but it's really the best. I want to say this. I want you to hear something that I think is really valuable. <clears throat> this, this text that we're reading, the author intended for you to be transformed by it. He intended for you to be moved and you to be changed by this text. And so that means if you decide, I'm going to start reading and I'm going to stick with it, six months from now, you will be a different and better 
person because you engaged in that process. And that's, I'm not saying that just to make you feel guilty. That's a guarantee because that is what the word of God was designed to do. You will be a different and better person because you've been transformed by what God is trying to do through this ancient writing from an anonymous author all about Jesus.